and welcome to the Disability Connection. I'm your host, Walter Nunes. The Disability Connection is produced by the Disability Law Center, which is the protection and advocacy system for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We're located at 11 Beacon Street, and you can contact us via the web at www.dlc-ma.org or 617-723-8455 or toll-free 800-872-9992. The Disability Law Center assists individuals and families with disabilities and a variety of issues. If you think we can provide some legal assistance to you, feel free to contact us. Today, <clears throat> I'm joined by attorney Colleen Shea. Colleen is a Skadden Fellow who's working at the Disability Law Center on a school-to-prison pipeline which is issues regarding students with disabilities. Colleen, welcome to the Disability Connection. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So I like to be as simple as possible. So let's start with the very basic. What is a Skadden Fellow? So essentially a very large law firm, that starts with the name Skadden, um, gives money to about 20 to 25 students every year. Usually they're mostly students, although not necessarily, um, who are coming out of law school and they pitch to this fellowship foundation projects that they're passionate about that help um, communities in need across the country. So my project is here in Massachusetts and I represent students with disabilities in school discipline and special education matters all across the state. Well, that's pretty impressive stuff. And one of the things that we talked about in preparing for this show was something called the school to prison pipeline. What's that? So there's a lot of ways to define it, but essentially um, schools sometimes have a bad habit of, a, of taking a student who is difficult to work with um, and excluding them from school through things like suspensions and expulsions. Um, and eventually over time, those things start to add up and students start not wanting to come to school and not want to be a part of school and their academic achievement really regresses. And oftentimes schools are in fact charging students and arresting students in schools um, for, for minor things. For example, in Massachusetts, there's a charge on the books called disturbing the school assembly. So for pretty much anything, a school can call the police or have a police officer on campus and arrest a student. Um, I've had elementary school students charged with disturbing the school assembly all the way through high school um, for things like um, knocking a desk over for being mouthy with a teacher. Um, and that sort of just sets the precedent for students to end up in the criminal justice system a lot sooner for basic school discipline violations. And this most impacts uh, students with disabilities and students of color. Well, when I was a little rotten child, I disturbed many a school assembly. So um, when did this go into effect? This has been going on for a long time. I think, I think it's gotten a lot of attention recently as being a part of sort of a larger prison problem in this country. Uh, and what I think they're realizing and looking at sort of the prison population is, wait a minute, all these students, all these now adults have, might have a lot, but large population has disabilities and a large population are from minority backgrounds and starting to look at, well, how did this happen? And then if you kind of trace it back, it's students who are on IEPs and students who are repeatedly suspended and charged for in-school offenses. Um, that in other school districts and more affluent white school districts are generally handled by sort of just in school as opposed to calling the police. So uh, 
Um, sometimes this is called zero tolerance. Yes. And does this have anything to do with, um, you know, school shootings? Did it grow out of that as a response to school shootings and things of that nature? I think that could definitely be part of it. I think it was going on before then to a certain degree. Um, but after Columbine, there was something federally called the Gun-Free Schools Act that was passed um, that made it much easier for schools to expel students for uh, violence and for weapons, um, in a nutshell. And schools started adopting these sort of very strict zero-tolerance policies. If you break a rule in their, their code of conduct, as minor as it may be, the consequences can be as severe as the school wants. Um, and then schools have started bringing police officers actually onto school campuses. So in a lot of communities in Massachusetts, there's actual police officers who belong to the police department in schools all day long for safety so, reasons. Yeah, so let me kind of <laughs> drill down a little bit because I think, you know, this is a live program. And by the way, if you want to call in and speak to Attorney Shea, 617-708-3290. We're glad to hear from you. I mean, I think most folks would say, yeah, we don't want Junior bringing a gun to school, but that's not really what we're talking about here, are we? No. And other than knocking over a desk, I, I know from working at the Disability Law Center and hearing similar types of cases, sometimes people bring in pretty benign items, right? Yeah, probably I think the most common thing that students bring into school that's a big violation is uh, knives. So a student might live in rural Massachusetts and have gone hunting or fishing over the weekend and forgot the knife in the backpack and come to school with it and for whatever reason they're taking their stuff out, it falls out. The, the student didn't bring it to school with the attention to hurt anyone, they just forgot it was there. Um, and I've had at least a half a dozen cases that fit those facts, it's just at one extent pretty closely. Um, and in that circumstance, a, a school in Massachusetts can actually expel you from school. They still have to provide you with education, but you can be effectively removed from your classroom setting and your peers. And um, it's really difficult to, to fight that. So, and I criminally mean, charged. Is too. there any discretion in this? I mean, if, if uh, you know, Opie comes in, and I'm only thinking of Andy of Mayberry there, a, a kid comes in from rural Massachusetts, and it's more likely than not than this is actually a knife that was used to skin trout or whatever. Does the zero tolerance approach make it so the school has no choice? They must suspend the child because they brought a weapon to school? Um, they have an obligation to report it, but they have discretion in sort of what the punishment is. Um, they also do not have to necessarily refer to the police for the criminal prosecution. Um, oftentimes schools still decide to enforce a zero tolerance policy in the school um, as a means to, as a way to, I guess, send a message to the rest of the school community that this is not tolerated. That's the justification I most often hear. And uh, is there any liability aspect where the school is saying, we're not going to tolerate this, but by the same token, let's say that it really wasn't a knife that somebody brought in from their camping trip and they had ill intent. Is it just a way to protect themselves and to be safer generally? I think sometimes that holds water, sometimes not. <laughs> okay. And, you know, we're, we have to realize that in addition to my not knowing anywhere near what you know on this subject, we're also trying to educate the, the public here. Now, one of the things you, you brought up, and I think I would be remiss not to, not to focus on it, at least for a moment. I mean, I work at the Disability Law Center, you're a fellow at the Disability Law Center, and we're concerned primarily 
with students with disabilities. But you mentioned, and I think it's appropriate to raise the issue of how this zero tolerance, these policies are affecting students of color, whether or not they have a disability. Right, so I think communities of color, just in general, in our state and other states, are overly policed in their communities, so in their neighborhoods, but also in their schools. So, for example, Boston um, Public Schools has police in schools. Um, Fall River Public Schools, police in schools. New Bedford Public Schools has police officers in schools, usually not at the elementary school level, but in the middle school and high school level. So there's a cop on campus all day just walking around, and the school at any point can refer um, Randolph is another one I just recently ran into, can refer any sort of disciplinary incident to the police for criminal prosecution. Um, and again, that can be as minor as mouthing off to a, to a teacher, uh, which will put you into the juvenile justice system and you have to he appear before a judge. And if you rack up enough of these in school, you'll end up in juvenile detention. Unbelievable. Um, I want to I follow up on that because that really lays out the a school to prison pipeline. But you, you know, you rattled off a bunch of schools that have police. Um, what communities don't have police in school? In Massachusetts, yeah. uh, Newton, for example, doesn't have a police officer in its school. Um, predominantly white community, predominantly affluent community. And I think you can see that pattern in a lot of school districts in Massachusetts that aren't communities of color. Um, and the police in the school districts sort of come to these agreements on their own. And in my mind, there's not enough sort of asking the community what they think is best and their opinion about, I'm sure everyone is worried about school safety and concerned about school safety, but I think the better solution, in my opinion, would be for schools, like if there is an incident where there is something scary or there's a real safety concern and someone does bring a weapon to school, you can call the police and they will come and handle it as they would if we were there was an incident here and we'd call the police. They'll show up pretty quickly um, to, to deal with the situation. Uh, there's also other things like if schools often have restraints trained staff and there's people who can, you know, physically if needed intervene in a safe and legal way for both the child and the school. So to me it seems that having a police officer in the school is very overzealous and just sort of perpetuating this problem and a Another layer to that is police officers aren't trained to deal with children. These, these police officers in schools do not need any special training to deal with juveniles. On top of it, they don't have any disability training. Um, and most often, students who are acting out that may have some behavioral difficulties might have mental health disabilities um, or disabilities that manifest in sort of maladaptive behaviors like autism is sometimes can manifest that way. Um, and so police officers are looking at this child like they're an adult without a disability, and that's how they're interacting with them and dealing with them, um, which can often see, I'm sure people have seen on the internet where they, there's you know, police officers who are throwing students to the ground and arresting them. Um, I don't know personally of any incidents that that's happened in Massachusetts, but it, it is a problem. Well, you know, I don't want to, uh, I want to move off the issue, but I can't help but think that in many of the major school shooting incidents, we weren't talking about students of color. Is that correct, or do we not know? Um, I don't know enough about that. I mean, the most famous ones that got the most press, I would say no. Those were, those were young males, of, who were white young males. Um, Columbine is the one that I just right. keep going back to. Um, and Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook, yeah. Um, no, I just, and, and so 
the infractions that are occurring, say, in Boston Public Schools or Fall River or these schools with police in them, are they gun-related infractions? Um, I haven't had, in my experience, no. Uh, they're often just behavioral dis disturbances. So it might be um, verbal altercations with school staff. It might be peer-to-peer, -peer, like pushing, shoving, sort of you know, playground roughness, getting into a fight at school. Um, and with then another kid. With another student, um, sometimes, sometimes verbally with staff. And, and oftentimes it's not even escalating to that level before they're you know, being pressed with criminal charges. You know, every time you say something, it's like I have this, this, this branch of a tree. It just opens up more things to me. But I guess the obvious thing is, and I know this is so obvious you'll probably giggle, what effect does this have on education? Never mind criminal justice and all the rest. I mean, are these kids learning in an environment like this? Um, I would say that it definitely impacts students learning. I think the more that you are suspending a kid, the more court dates you're putting a child through, the more they're removed from their educational program. Um, and the more that also sort of their, their self-esteem and their sort of self-worth is deflated and they are less likely to feel engaged in the school community and process. Well, what do you know? We have a call. Oh. Caller, please. Hello, you're on uh, the Disability Connection. Yes, thank you. I, I, I was We're not hearing to... you in the studio. Hello? Hello? Yeah, here you Okay, are. there I am. Oh, hi. Uh, yes, um, I, was, I was finding your conversation very interesting. I was wondering, has there been a case in which um, administration who had a student removed via these no tolerance policies review their actions and make changes um, because of lawsuits to the school um, or uh, lawsuits from the students, because it seems nowadays more and more that, as you were saying, zero tolerance seems to be this blanket magic wand to just fix any issues a student may be having, or to actually, I'm sorry, resolve a student's behavior but not find the underlying reasoning for why a student may be acting out. Of course, there'll be students that might be jerks or smart alecks and so forth, but it seems a lot of the cases that we see nowadays in which a student may be acting up may because of because of what's happening at the home or they may be a victim of, of, uh, of assault or sexual assault that, or, or, a ment or mental um, health cases. And I seem that nowadays they just want to punish rather than treat. Well, thank you, caller. I think that's right up attorney. Jay's uh, alley, because that's kind <laughs> of what you do, right? I certainly agree with the caller. Um, you know, the Disability Law Center, before actually I came on board, did an investigation, um, and there were some changes made out in Springfield to a school that was serving uh, primarily a disability population where there was sort of abuses of, of, with restraints and seclusion, and, um, and there have been some changes there, and I know that the Office of Civil Rights has done similar investigations across the country and has made some changes in school districts that are more you know, systemic in nature. Um, and that's something Disability Law Center certainly looks into when we get multiple calls from the same area. I, um, I so far have just done individual cases, but whenever I have the opportunity to try to make a systemic change, I certainly do. Um, for example, I noticed in one school district they were handing out end of school year letters to kids that just said, this is the end of your school year, we've had enough of you. 
um, which is a legal violation <laughs> to say the least. Um, and they would let them take their MCAS or their end of year testing or whatever it was and they would just say, we'll see you next year. Um, and so I've, I've tried to sort of make a state complaint about the sy systemic problem and I'm, I'm going down another legal path for just the individual child. Um, but there's, there's certainly, it's, it's certainly an issue and something that I think does need to be addressed where, where there are wider problems. Can I ask wh why, the, why schools go this route? It just seems almost too easy, and I, I guess that's kind of the answer. It just seems too easy to do. Is, is that what you believe that's the case? That's just an easy, quick fix? So prior to work, working as a lawyer, I was a special ed teacher um, in New York City uh, in a low-income neighborhood in Brooklyn, and I taught seventh grade special ed. And I think I definitely sometimes can empathize with the school that they are stretched very thin, and I think that teachers and schools in general do have the best intent. I think certain times their patience runs thin, especially this, towards this time of year. And I think that um, parents aren't equipped with the know-how often to, to understand that the school actually can't do some of the things that they try to do. And sometimes often I don't think the school quite understands their own legal obligations um, and what they can and can't do because the laws, frankly, are confusing. Um, I mean, that's a pretty blatant violation that I just mentioned. <laughs> the school should know better than that. But it takes a parent to call an agency like us and um, sort of keep them on their toes and keep them accountable. And I think this happens in wealthier communities that have access to, you know, can pay for an attorney. And I think this is less likely to happen in lower income areas where there's fewer attorney resources. I cover the whole state and I'm one of the only people in the state that does this kind of work. There's only a few of us you can call and only a few of us that can do, you know, give free help. Um, and so I think that's, that's another problem. And so if I can take what we've heard from the caller and from what Attorney Shea has just said, that's essentially the nexus of your work. It's like we're talking about young people who engage in behaviors that is problematic for the school, um, but this is behaviors are generally due to a disability. Right. And so how do you as an attorney separate the child whose behavior is symptomatic of a disability from, to use the expression that the caller used, the wise guy or what I was like in school. I mean, really, how, how do you thread that needle so that the kid doesn't end up uh, in the criminal system eventually? So I think sort of the better question to ask is, you know, what's related to the disability, what's not, and sometimes legally you have to ask that question, but sort of why is the student acting like a smart aleck to begin with would sort of be, I think, the better starting point. What mm -hmm. is causing him to, does he want attention from his peers? Does he, is he actually really struggling with what the, what's going on in class and just has no idea what's going on? So to entertain himself, he just is, is you know, putting on a show, so to speak. Sure. Um, and trying to figure out what sort of is the cause of, of that, especially if it's like becoming, it's disrupting the, his education and possibly the education of others. Um, and I think that's a real place to start and a difficult place to start. Um, and I think too often schools want to lump that kid into a category um, of sort of class clown without thinking about, well, maybe he actually doesn't understand what he's reading. But the clients that you serve are clients that have disabilities. Yes. And there is that nexus, at least in most of the cases, between behavior and disability. Yes, I absolutely think so. Like in, that, in a case where a student is struggling to read high school level material and has an, an, you know, a learning disability that they're might maybe not getting the right services for, which is why they're struggling to read you know, 10th grade history textbook.
in class. Well, I know before we started the show, you were preparing for a hearing tomorrow. We don't want to talk about that. That's a separate issue. But when you've got a, a client, you've got a student who is engaged in some inappropriate behavior which resulted in a suspension or a threatened uh, expulsion or even worse, the being criminally charged, how do you as an attorney try to pull that back from the brink, get the kid the services they need so they can remain in school? So there's actually a lot of protections in place, um, both for students with disabilities and students without disabilities. Massachusetts has just beefed up in 2014 its sort of school discipline laws. So I use those. Those are for gen ed students and special ed students. And I also utilize federal laws that give a lot of protections and due process to students with disabilities. Um, and so, for example, before a school can expel a student or suspend a student for a long period of time, they need to hold a manifestation meeting and determine whether or not that child's conduct is related to their disability. So that's a major protection that students with disabilities have um, that general education students would not. Okay, we're coming close. We've got about two minutes left. And I guess trying to help families who may be struggling with this, and I know I'm a, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, Everybody, if you engaged the behaviors, there was no, nothing other than class clown, and you were disciplined. They didn't have the cops in the school. So when a family is starting to deal with a middle school or a high school student who's engaging in behaviors, getting notes home from the teacher, whether they're in a Boston school or a Newton school, what should families do as a first step to sort of get out ahead of this to avoid the expulsion and the suspensions and all the rest of it? I mean, I think if, there, if you suspect that your child might have a disability, whether that be mental health-wise or even if it's a simple, you know, something sort of manageable or even that is time-bored, like anxiety, depression that someone might not struggle with their whole life, um, I think it's important to ask the school to evaluate the child for special ed services. To ask the school to do the evaluation. Yes, that's the way the process works. So okay. if, if, if your child is having behavioral difficulty in school, um, and you suspect that it, there might be something deeper going on as far as disability related, I think the first step for every parent is to ask the school to do an evaluation and to see if the child might benefit from special education services. Uh, and the school's obligated to do that. They can't say no to you. And they get an individual education plan. Right. So if they decide, so the school does, so a school psychologist will do some testing and they'll, they'll figure out whether or not the child has a disability. Um, and then if they decide yes, then they'll make a plan that's individualized to each student to put services in place to help them, um, to help them manage their behaviors. That's fantastic. We're pretty much at the end of the show. Perfect. Colleen, you've been great. Uh, in all honesty, if there are families watching this and you're starting to have these problems with your son or daughter, please call the Disability Law Center, 617-723-8455. This program, in addition to being replayed here, uh, will be available on YouTube, Vimeo, uh, the Disability Law Center Facebook page, as well as our website, which is dlc-ma.org. Uh, Attorney Shea, thank you so very much. I think it was thank a really, you. really good show. Be safe.